We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. Got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about blockchain innovation, about AI. Um, the great thing about this show is you get different topics from week to week. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the economy. We were talking about innovation as well. And that last week had a great episode where um, we talked about someone who overcame tremendous odds after a uh, really terrible physical injury and was able to work themselves back and overcome those obstacles. So a lot of different ways to find freedom. And today we'll be talking about, like I said, blockchain and AI and just general innovation. Um, I'll introduce my guest in just a minute. Before I do that, I want to remind everyone um, that if you enjoy this show, if you like what Brian and I are doing here at Lions of Liberty, be sure to subscribe uh, on whatever podcasting app you are listening on. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to hit that notification button and subscribe as well. And uh, if you want more Lions of Liberty, please join us. Join the Lions of Liberty Pride, either patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. And with that, let's bring in today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Lyle Swim. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at Atlas Network. Uh, in his role, he leads the organization's team and systems development and continues as the Atlas Network continues to grow in size, reach, and impact. He's a sought-after speaker. He speaks on ethics, leadership, innovation, adoption, and education innovation. He holds a doctorate of education with an emphasis in organization leadership from Pepperdine University and a bachelor's in communication, communications and an MBA from BYU. Uh, his research and writing on leadership, ethics, education, reform, adult learning, innovation, adoption has been published in a wide range of peer-reviewed journals and various local and national outlets. Lyle, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thanks, John. I'm I'm glad to be here. Excited for the conversation today. So, been looking forward to it. Yeah, glad to glad to have you here. We're talking to each other on different sides of the world. So we are that we're yeah we're talking about innovation. Um, just you know, 10, 20 years ago, this would be almost impossible. So yeah, it's crazy how fast things can change. Um, let's let's start off with just your background. I gave an intro at the top there, yeah. but if you could just kind of give my audience an introduction about yourself, what you're passionate about, and then how, how you made your way um, to Atlas Network. Yeah, just a quick thing. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, speaking of location, as you said, from around the world in Berlin and actually on you know, what would have been the old east side of Berlin, uh, which is now oh. super vibrant. I remember uh, I came here as a teenager not long after the wall came down and we drove through West Berlin. Our hotel was on the East Berlin side. And you had this vibrant, open, free society, right? And still, mm -hmm. two years after, when you cross past the checkpoint, Charlie, into the eastern side, dark. Uh, and now, of course, that's that's all changed. But yes, yeah, some very interesting history here, and and with the Berlin Wall and freedom. But uh, in terms of my background, 
Um, I've been kind of all over the place. Uh, I don't know that I ever had a really clear answer to it. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I changed, you know, all the time, but I feel like I've kind of finally found that place. Um, so spent the first part of my career really in the for-profit sector, um, worked in the semiconductor industry, the tech sector, lived in the Bay area for a while, did my MBA, then went and worked in consumer products for Procter and Gamble. Um, but uh, ever since I was a little kid, my dad, it was kind of, I don't know if it was the family business, but my dad had always been involved around kind of this think, thing called think tanks. And so I met people from Heritage and Cato and, you know, some interesting people over the years that were in this business of how do you make life more free? Not, not necessarily the mm -hmm. politicians, right? Which oftentimes don't make the world more free. Uh, and, um, and as I was finishing up my dis well, I worked in, in between those things. I did work for Sutherland Institute in Utah, and we were working on a voucher initiative there that we passed. Uh, and then the unions came back and got it put on the referendum. This was back in 2007. And uh, in what had been the most conservative or Republican state in the union, um, the Republican governor, I think, won 65% to 35, right? So definitely a Republican mm -hmm. state. By the same amount, they overturned this universal voucher law, 65 to 35%. So you had a massive amount of Republicans who said no thank you to something that mm. – to educational freedom, right? Right. And it was really, I think, at that point that the seed got planted of why, why did we fail? And some of the early answers didn't really satisfy me. Well, the unions, right? They were so strong and, you know, the teachers unions kind of get what they want and they're well-funded and well-organized. Yes, that was an answer, but I didn't think it was the full answer. So I didn't know what to do with that question at the time. Uh, but then I went and began to work on my doctorate. Um, and it was while I was working on my doctorate in organizational leadership that, at uh, Pepperdine that I came across this theory uh, of the theory of innovation diffusion or the diffusion of innovations theory, uh, where I started to see, I think there might be some answers here. Um, and as I explored it more and dug into it more, I was more convinced that here's where a lot of the answers were to why we failed. Um, and of course, at the time I was still working in the for-profit sector. Um, but as I got into it, I'm like, you know, there's some value here for this, for the freedom movement. And I'd love to get back involved. Um, I just don't know where, because I'm not technically, uh, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a political scientist. So I'm probably not going to mm -hmm. be a policy analyst. Um, and then this opportunity at Atlas opened up to do this leadership development and training and kind of consulting projects that we were doing and kind of helping build the builders, right? And I'm like, that's, right. that's what I do. That's what I've been doing for private companies. And so it was kind of a perfect Venn diagram match to come mm -hmm. into Atlas initially to run all of their training and leadership development programs. And then, you know, my role has evolved and, and gone from that to the COO and now to the chief innovation officer. We're really trying to help Atlas think through, you know, where are there new places for us to have an impact? What are there things for us to be paying attention to on the horizon that either we need to be mindful of or can leverage? And that's really where my work, at least at Atlas, has come into play in terms of the decentralized technologies and artificial intelligence and, and some of the project in, projects in our innovation lab, where we're trying to see, A, where can the freedom movement better utilize these technologies to be more productive, to be more responsive, quicker, 
um, you know, and maybe even to a certain extent more cost efficient. Mm-hmm. And then second, where do we need to be playing with our partners and helping our partners to engage in the public policy and, uh, you know, shaping the debate and public opinion to make make the world more free to innovate, right? As opposed right. to what can be the gut reaction. And, and this shows up in the research that I did on innovation adoption, that new oftentimes introduces fear. Um, and so how do you combat that? How do we create an environment where we mitigate the fear and and help better demonstrate the promise and opportunity um, versus the fear. So that's a little bit of mm-hmm. kind of where we got to yeah. uh, where we are today. But I've continued to, while I'm not what I would say a technologist from a pure pure standpoint, my my work when it comes to innovation and technology has really been much more focused on what either accelerates technology adoption or mm-hmm. policy adoption or what gets in the way and and then how do we be better at that yeah and i, I d- definitely do want to get into that topic of how do we accelerate technology because i think that's a really interesting conversation um you know i and we'll we'll table that for a minute before yeah. we, we get we go down that road um i just want to circle back to Atlas Network, and yeah. can you just ex- explain to my viewers what what the the charter, what the vision, the goals of the Atlas Network are? Yeah, so our founder Anthony Fisher was the founder of the Institute for Economic Affairs in London. That was really the intellectual workhorse behind all the Margaret Thatcher reforms. And so, as he watched that play out, his thought was, "How can we get more of this happening all across the world?" And so he came over to the U.S. and actually founded, at the time, it was called the Atlas Economic Research Institute. But in addition to its kind of some think tank activities, it also had this mandate, how can we grow and incubate and develop more freedom, free market, classically liberal, libertarian slash conservative oriented think tanks around the globe? And... Uh, really, it was probably around 2008 that we drop, began to drop all of the think tank related stuff and said, we're just going to focus on the network part. We're just going to focus on this. You know, we're, we're not as good as we could be because we're split. So let's get rid of the thing that maybe is other people can do really well and, and we can be really unique in focusing on this. And so mm-hmm. we now have 580 plus think tank partners, advocacy groups, education oriented groups, for example, like the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, all over the world, 104 different countries. Um, and so we work to help build them. So we offer training uh, programs for them to help them be better at fundraising. We're doing like a, actually a, On that, we're doing a training for an initial training on how to build the back end to accept Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in terms of donations, helping our partners get better at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because that, you know, that permissionlessness, especially for some of our partners in more unfree countries can become problematic, how they're getting funds. Um, So we we do that training and work fundraising, marketing, leadership development, operations, etc., we also grant about $8 million a year to those partners in competitive grants where they're working on specific projects and where we can help. Um, and then we have a lot of events and cohorts that we get together to celebrate wins, share best practices, and just in general help the movement cross-pollinate ideas and concepts to be as effective um, 
and as healthy and robust an ecosystem as we can possibly create. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a fun place to be. And uh, again, that's part of why I'm here in Berlin. We just had a kind of policy hackathon that we just did with, uh, you know, 11 different partner projects over the last couple of days to help them kind of up-level their work and hopefully be more successful at getting their policies adopted in their respective countries. Yeah, a fascinating place to be. Um, you know, if you look at you look at South America and, and what's yeah. happening in, uh, in in Argentina, right? Yeah, that's, that's yes, country, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's th these yeah, ideas yeah, yeah, are we think, think inflation's bad where we are, but uh, yeah, Argentina's got yeah. it pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to to circle back to accelerating innovation, um, yeah. I I kind of have a I guess a unique, maybe not too too unique, but I have a experience perspective yeah. on, um, on the topic is I've worked in energy and oil and gas and, and nuclear. Um, I work in risk management over the years. I've worked for huge companies and, uh, currently I work for a pretty small, um, I guess it's technically still a, a startup, but, uh, we're, we're public now, but I, I won't share the names, but I've seen companies struggle. These large bureaucratic companies struggle to innovate, struggle to adapt. Um, And to be able to, you know, accelerate and bring new ideas to market, and I've seen, you know, the other side of it with smaller companies that are able to able to pivot quickly. Um, so when we talk about accelerating innovation, and you know, you can use, I guess, you know, blockchain as an example. Wh where do you think that innovation is going to come from? Do you think it's going to come from the uh, the larger companies? I know, if we, and we can get into details on it. Yeah. I know, uh, City has definitely has recently released. Um, this technology where they'll be using it for, uh, for transfers within their network. Um, do you think it'll come from that arena or do you think there'll be more disruption from uh, smaller players? Well, the, the data would tend to sit. So I think there's a couple of places where it may come. Uh, sure. Definitely. As you mentioned, the smaller entrepreneurial firms tend to have a much higher risk tolerance, right? So um, I think part of the dilemma you know, maybe it's one of the, you know, kind of the key things I try to harp on and pound on is we oftentimes talk about innovation in a very kind of generic way. Like we want to be more innovative. And I think that oftentimes sets us up for failure. So um, I think it's more helpful for us to think about innovation kind of on a spectrum where you have incremental innovation on one end, and then you have what, can be referred to as modular and then architectural. And then the one other one you've heard is probably radical or disruptive innovation, right? So yes. if we think about it on that spectrum and, and there's different characteristics along the way, the more radical you get, the more risk you introduce into a system, right? So um, it has the potential to, to kill off major players or kill off the way things have been done before. And there's really no example of it working, right? So we really don't know is... You know, one of the classic examples in sports is, is Moneyball. We, they didn't know if it was going to work, right? There was a huge risk. Right. And so nobody wanted to touch it except the one team that really had nothing to lose, right? Mm -hmm. they, there was no other option. They were out of options. So, uh, so that, that's the other place. So I think young entrepreneurial firms that can take a risk that, that really, you know, can't necessarily compete in the same space and, and need a new way. And then you might see it come from some larger organizations, but I would say most of those organizations would be considered, you know, they might be, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh in their industry where they're trying to catch up to other people, 
mm-hmm. and the only way they can do it is to take a big swing. And so they're willing to take on a bit more of that risk uh, and um, go that route. So uh, I think as we look at it, if you lo- if you look at a lot of where I would say the real experimentation, where I think if you look at, say, blockchain and some of these other early things where there's been examples of success, by and large, it's not big firms. I mean, I wrote about this. I wrote about the IBM Maersk thing that just didn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think so. So the risk is one. I think the IBM factor also comes into play where they're trying to implement this new technology where there isn't really actually enough built up knowledge about it. And they're trying to implement it in some really complex ways that requires a lot of stakeholder buy-in and a lot of moving pieces to get right. And so you add on top of that a massive bureaucratic layer uh, and and they're going to fail. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's right now, um, yeah, the, the landscape's littered with, you know, projects that have just gone, gone belly up because yeah, either they were too complex in terms of what they try to do. So there was, you know, it was going to take a really long time to realize success and, and people aren't patient enough to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, two, I think the big companies that try to play in this aren't going to, aren't going to make it. So we're seeing, I think there was a company in Texas, speaking of oil and gas, um, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a small startup company. I think they ended up there at 200 employees. They just got bought, but they were doing some smart contracts on the blockchain and were able to demonstrate proof, but they were very, it was very specific. They were just focused on oil and gas and there were, there was kind of one specific Mm -hmm. problem. And that was, you know, in these contracts, getting payment faster from the vent, you know, number one, validating that the metrics had been met and two, getting the payment faster. So uh, on the one hand, help, you know, this problem solved for the, for the contractor was they got paid faster. And for the person contracting, they had an easier way to validate that what they were paying for, they were actually getting. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were much more tailored and specific um, and what they were doing and, and they just got acquired and, and, uh, are continuing to grow their business. So those are a few things, at least that I've noticed, um, you know, but I would say in general, 75% is going to come from companies we probably haven't heard about. And I would say over the next five to seven years before some of the bigger players are able to learn from them and mm-hmm. then start to adopt the technology in more meaningful ways and, and more complex ways. Yeah. I think you know just to to zero in on on Bitcoin for for a moment. Uh, yeah. One of the things that that is holding Bitcoin back for sure is the is the complexity of of using yeah. it. I mean, you're not going to have you know older the older generation the the boomers and and that type you know buying Bitcoin and then moving it to a to a wallet and then yeah. um, taking it off the wallet and converting it to another cryptocurrency in order to in order to use it there's just too many barriers to entry um, for that and then you also have the the uh, large contention of the Bitcoin community that just wants to hold on to it <laughs> and that's really it's really not gonna you know increase the use of it if we're yeah. not being innovative and creating ways and uh, you know d- different uh, avenues to uh, to transact with it, but yeah, I think you know, I think you've would... nailed one of the critical mm-hmm. you know, um, inhibitors, right? Um, and I think we even see this in the freedom movement, right? There's there's a language all its own in the Bitcoin community, mm-hmm. and it really disincentivizes outsiders from joining. 
joining up. So yeah, you, you basically limit, you know, and sometimes it's by choice, right? Like, well, we've got this special little club and I think mm-hmm. we do it in the freedom movement, right? We use words yeah. that other people, like I, I even made this mistake on an airplane. I you know, talked about, I was, you know, somebody asked me what I was doing and, you know, I said, yeah, we, you know, we just focus on some things that are really important to freedom, like the rule of law. And the person next to me was like, what is the rule of law? <laughs> right. So I, I think in the Bitcoin community, we do, you know, the same thing happens, like the, all mm-hmm. the technology jargon and, and, and if you stay in that space, you're really going to limit the ability for that decentralizing technology to achieve the kind of promise that you mm-hmm. say it can and have you. I mean, you're, you're really putting, you know, constraints on your ability to win and diffuse um, by, you know, one, the language that we talk about, and two, to your point, like, it's really complex to, to transact in the currency. I mean, you have had a few early adopters, like I know Overstock was an early adopter in terms of taking Bitcoin as payment, and, and there were some others. But um, getting beyond, you know, I would say, if, if I were to look at the adoption of Bitcoin, I would still say, if you look at the diffusion curve, and I think most people know some of the terms like early adopter, but the first three percent are called innovators, and that's not to be mistaken with people that came up with the idea. Those the innovators and the curve are just referred to the first people that adopt, and they're the weird ones, right? They're, they're often the outcasts mm-hmm. of society. <laughs> you know, libertarians. You go to a libertarian yeah. party convention in the U.S., and they're kind of the weird ones. Uh, oh yeah, I've, you know, I've been and, there, I've been and some there. of them wear that badge with great honor and affection, right? You know, so. <laughs> uh, but same thing in Bitcoin, and then it's the early adopters that are the real bridge builders between kind of the first 3% that adopt. And then that next 15% is really where the movement and diffusion really Mm -hmm. begins to grow and accelerate. And I would say, if you look at kind of where we are just in terms of raw numbers, in terms of companies that are doing things, we're still, I would say by and large in the innovation phase. And we're slowly starting to get into the early adopter. But I think that's really the key now. If, if we really want, if, if Bitcoin enthusiasts are really serious about wanting this to span, expand and spread um, to really where it does become, for example, the default currency as opposed to the dollar, um, you know, given that we have to make the language more approachable. There have to be some technological solutions that make the, the transaction process much more seamless. Um, and unless I don't have to be a technical expert, I mean, I feel like I've been around technology a long time and, and there's still aspects that I struggle to understand yeah. when they get in deep conversations. Uh, and I'm probably, you know, I would probably be one of those people in the early adopter category. So if I'm not really understanding it in a way that I can, you know, that because I can then expand through my network, we're really limiting the impact of, of this mm-hmm. currency or any technology to have the kind of change impact that the potential I think is there to really reshape not only monetary policy, but how governments operate in general. I mean, I, it, it is really significant. And, and, and I think governments are paying attention and I think they're in some ways they're happy that the Bitcoiners, those in the Bitcoin community, they're trying to keep it small. I think they're just fine with that because it means they can stay in power longer. Yeah, I, I mean, it it's definitely growing in, you know, the amount of people using it, and it'll be yeah. interesting to see what happens with uh, this this BlackRock, you know, spot ETF that is supposedly going to be that, that that they'll be starting. 
Um, yeah. I don't know if that's if that's just going to mess with the price and cause it to fluctuate more and, and not really do much for, for innovation yeah. or, or adoption. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the, you know, the ETF in some ways, I, I think there's probably some things that we can look at um, where I think there's some other similar examples, right? So if you look at hard currency like silver or gold, right, there are ETFs mm-hmm. that trade in those. Uh, and part of the the value of those, obviously, is that, A, I don't have to carry the currency around. Um, and B, it's just, it's it's more liquid than it might otherwise be in terms of the ability to transact. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's some things there that we can learn from. And I don't, I think if you look at those exchange traded funds, um, uh, when it comes to some of the more traditional, you know, monies, uh, hard currencies, I don't think it's made it more more volatile. Um, yeah. I, I think you know with any, with any any sort of currency, the more people that are engaged and are using it, actually, you know, the larger number of people engaging in and with a particular currency, the less likely it is to have massive fluctuations and swings. Particularly, you know, in the case of Bitcoin, where um, you know it is designed to have a limit um you know you could see for example with gold you could see a significant massive swing down if all of a sudden tomorrow there was a massive mine or a massive gold find you know that people could get and all of a sudden you were able to flood the market with you know essentially double the supply of gold in the system well well, you can't do that with with um well you can't do it at least with bitcoin Mm -hmm. um and so I think the more people you can get involved, I think the less likely you would see that. And even now, I think we've seen the fluctuations start to even out. Yes, there are, but it's not as significant as it was, you know, even three, five Mm -hmm. years ago. And I think part of that is you have more people trading, more people are involved. And and I think those swings, I guess I would predict, I'm not, you know, don't, don't buy Bitcoin based on my recommendation. I guess that's the, uh, that's the one, Mm -hmm. you know, caveat here. We're not investment advisors, but. Um, I I would think over time, you know, much like the US dollar, I think that's one of the things that makes it stable is so many people are trading in it. It is just harder to manipulate. Um, And but, you know, Bitcoin, on the other hand, because of its limit, um, and the more people that get involved, I think you should see less significant fluctuation. Mm -hmm. Which then leads, leads, leads to more adoption, right? Because if people see it as more stable, you know, it becomes a, a virtuous cycle. So I, I think it yeah. could help. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's really been the, the argument against one of the arguments against Bitcoin that it's, it's not stable. It's not safe. Uh, you, you could lose all your money, um, but you could lose all your money investing in the stock market as well. well There's lots of ways. Well, just look at like, money. yeah, I mean, I think people, I think to a certain extent, I wonder, I mean, I don't have any data, but I wonder how much mm-hmm. of that is, less on people's minds now because of what they just went through in terms of inflation with the U S dollar. It was really the first time that people, you know, if you were holding your money in dollars and all of a sudden there's these inflationary pressures um, or anywhere else in the world, right? If you like Argentina, where it's what 40, 50% inflation, right? Where Mm -hmm. at the end of the month, your money's not worth the same, you know, blockchain or not blockchain, but Bitcoin starts to look, you know, pretty okay where, you know, maybe you have 10, 15% fluctuations, but you don't have 40. Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. 
Um, I want to pivot and uh, and focus in on decentralized innovation. Yeah. Um, first, if you could just define really what what that term means means to you. I think the easiest way to define is, you know, I think, or what I've felt from my perspective, I felt like I've heard is mm-hmm. uh, one, there's a permissionlessness aspect to it. So I, what I end up doing is I, I enable transactions to happen. I, I really eliminate kind of a middleman and that middleman might be a government. Uh, I think we're all familiar, you know, I'm all familiar, but if you've purchased a home, there's a lot of middlemen <laughs> in the home oh, yeah. buying process and they make a lot of money off being in the middle. Um, slow down the process. They slow down. Oops. Sorry. Just, uh, I'll lose that here. Um, so that, yeah, they slow down the process. They take their cut along the way. Mm-hmm. And so from my perspective, I think decentralized technology um, is a way in which technology increases the trust between the, the trust and the ability of individuals to directly transact and engage in some sort of transaction um, and thus eliminate the third parties that we've had to use in the past to validate, generate trust uh, or broker uh, an interaction between two individuals, right? So um, like I said, that example of the, the gas company um, and the blockchain uh, technology that they were doing, you know, beforehand, it, it might be 45 days before somebody got paid because they met certain performance criteria on an oil rig. And in between that were the lawyers, you know, or they might have an inspector, you had to have somebody do this. So there was kind of all this cost built in. And now, you know, the the company, the two different companies, it eliminates all of that middle. It's transparent. It's open. The ledger, everybody can look at it, see it. And all of a sudden it's faster. I don't need the attorneys the same way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a lot more confidence. And I think, you know, so that I best would be my best description. It's a, a trust increasing, transparency generating, middleman eliminating set of technologies. So for, for, for larger companies or already existing companies, like say, for example, you know, something like, like a Google. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it more difficult for them to, to implement, you know, and, um, you know, accelerate innovation by utilizing, you know, decentralized innovation tactics just because there's so many different stakeholders and voices that are, that are involved in the process. Yeah. It was interesting when, when I, when I was talking with this CEO, uh, um, at uh, this company that I've mentioned a couple times in the oil and gas space, mm-hmm. He's, his comment was, "Not everybody wants transparency," and, which is, mm-hmm. you know, ironic. He's like, yeah. "So there's certain things where they want this, and there's other places where they don't want people knowing yeah. what's really going on." Right. So, yeah, on the one hand, I think there are probably aspects where Google uh, may end up being a first adopter, where it really makes a lot of sense. And, and, and to your point, the the stakeholder objection is is so much less significant than the value that they create on the other end uh, in terms of whether it's cost savings or you know mm-hmm. t- time for payment or whatever it might be. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, I think there may be st- stakeholders in Google when it comes to 
more full-fledged adoption kind of throughout their business operations that they won't do it because mm-hmm. it would open the doors and create a visibility and window into what they're doing that could open them up to scrutiny, um, you know, could help people better understand their costs and payments and, and what they're doing in ways yeah. that uh, they may not want. So, and, and which, you know, and beyond Google, you know, think about governments in that same token, right? If you were really that transparency and trust, I think could totally reshape how people interact with governments, government agencies, but that kind of transparency. I remember even we were pushing, you know, you're, you, one of the efforts that we were doing when I was at Sutherland was pushing to get budgets put online and easily accessible to the public. And most mm-hmm. of the cities and towns didn't want to do that. You know, they didn't want their <laughs> books open to the public, right? I'll say, wait a minute, you know, you have to go through a grammar request to get that. And, you know, they made it as difficult as absolutely possible. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, I think in certain instances, like I said, I think in some cases Google may be at the forefront, and in other cases they may actually be some of the laggards pushing against. You know, they they'll they'll go to the decentralized technology buffet, and they'll kind of pick and choose where they want to play, and they'll leave certain things that they feel like could harm their business mm-hmm. and empower their competitors. I, I think that's a really interesting conversation around the transparency accent. Uh, the transparency part, talking about, you know, government sort of pulling back the curtain on that and, and large corporations as well. And a lot of times large corporations are very entwined with government yep. and maybe, maybe exactly. that's one of the reasons why they want yeah. to keep the, uh, keep the curtain up. But from a, uh, you know, a freedom perspective from those of us that, you know, like transparency and are, are you know, trying to um, empower the individual to have as much, you know, view into these uh, processes as possible. Um, It'll be interesting to see, you know, as we do get, you know, more of this decentralized innovation and more of this view into the the maybe smaller companies first or, um, you know, more, you know, companies that are open to to, uh, embracing this technology and allowing, um, you know, the citizen, uh, the consumer to see into their process and to... uh, um, have a view into different areas of business that they haven't before that may force governments to sort of do the same thing. You know, for example, say if you're, and maybe this isn't the best example, I was going to say, say if you're a cable company, but those are essentially almost government entities because of their monopoly. But say if, uh, I don't know, say if uh, airlines is a bad example too, um, banking's not the best example. I'm trying to think of an example of, of a company that would give you know, a view into say, say a car, say a, a vehicle manufacturer that, you know, maybe give, gives you a view into the entire process of how your car is made and you're able to really see the, see the costs at, at every level, um, might put pressure on different segments, different industries to, uh, to do the same. Is that a way longest question ever is, is, is that a way that you think we could see some of that adoption sort of, you know, force its way into these, uh, different industries? Yeah, it could be that. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I don't know that I have uh, a perfect answer. I mean, the only thing that maybe comes to my mind is I think about, you know, is there maybe a, a, a parallel in terms of what we experience with, say, for example, Uber, right? So you had mm-hmm. this taxi cab 
yeah. you know, dynamic and, and they were kind of the middleman. If you wanted transportation, you, you had these companies that they had the monopoly and, and your only ability to access a service was to go through that monopoly. And then, you know, Uber didn't really come in and ask for permission, right? They just, mm-hmm. you know, asked for forgiveness, but they, they built a platform that allowed the consumer in a, in a very easy way to eliminate the middleman. Um, and, you know, basically uh, Uber is a decentralized technology. I don't know that we think about that, but right. It, it really allows two people to transact with a high level of trust and mm-hmm. the marketplace evaluates the drivers, right? We get to rate them. We can give them tips. Um, so there is, and maybe it's not what we might deem as a purely decentralized technology, but it's definitely a trend in that direction where I'm allowing two individuals in a transparent way to see what's the cost. And, uh, I could pick and choose, you know, when I want the service and I don't have to use some third party that has, you know, gained that business because of their position, not because they're actually offering me something more valuable than somebody else. Um, so I, I, I have to wonder, maybe there are some things like that where, you know, some people come onto the scene and industries that we thought, um, you know, there was only, you know, there's currently one way to do it. I mean, one of the areas where I think that is ripe for an opportunity for decentralized technologies to come in and potentially really disrupt, I do think is in the real estate business. As I look yes. at it to me, I think there's been a few attempts to do that. But why I still I don't understand why I should give up six percent of my equity in an asset for you to help me do a transaction, especially mm-hmm. if I've lost money on that asset. So I, I think uh, you know it'd be interesting that that could be one of them where a, you know a platform is created, much like an Uber. You know what's the real estate Uber that allows more people to see what's going on. Um, and, um, you know, we eliminate, you know, the need for, A, the licensing of a real estate agent, but, you know, you can validate, um, you know, who owns it and, and transact and, you know, see what's going on. I don't know. So, I mean, that's one where potentially much like the taxi cab industry, that that might be a, an industry that actually is one of the places where we see, I think we could see, and I think there's definitely appetite and room to see a significant change. Um yeah, and, and AI could play a role in that. I mean, so yeah. much of what real estate agents do now is they come in and they tell you, well, let's make your house look this way and get all this stuff out of this room. And well, if you just are able to take pictures and then with AI, you're able to just remove things from a room and make it look perfect. Yeah. And then you're showing the rooms um, you know, virtually. I, I don't know. That, that could be an answer. But I 100% agree with you. I mean, that's really an area where it just doesn't make sense. And every literally... I probably know, I don't know, more real estate agents, at least maybe they have another job, but at least they have their real estate license <laughs> yeah. than any other um, yeah. than any other uh, industry out there. It, it's amazing how many people are at least yeah. a little bit involved in, uh, in real estate. Well, and it's not just the agents, like even the titling process, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You, again, you've got all these middlemen and like I have to go in and I have to pay a title fee and you know, when we go to do that, like even the closing, right? The closing on a loan. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think there's a lot of pieces, um, you know, even for banks. Like, I think there could be some real incentive for banks that if you could develop a decentralized technology that would allow them to directly transact with, uh, you know, the buyer, you know, so basically you could eliminate, 
you know, if I'm trying to think back on the last home that we closed, like there, there was probably, you know, $1,500 in fees Mm -hmm. that even if you, you know, you could probably eliminate down to a (laughs) hundred, you know, plus, you know, I bought, I bought the home, right. So I didn't pay the commission. Right. Um, So then you add on top of that, the commissions that were paid and to transact in real estate, I just have to wonder how, how much more vibrant the real estate market could be. If decentralized- uh, but, but you did, you, you did pay a portion of the commission because it's built into the price. It's true. Yes, you're right. Like, <laughs> you know, where we might, yeah, we, you know, so as we look at it, if that commission price isn't there, um, you know, a, uh, the, the, the seller's not losing the same amount. So then mm-hmm. do they price it in a better way? Uh, and yeah. then two, what, what actually opens up in terms of real estate transactions and much more ebb and yeah. flow and, and where we go. Uh, in that regard, where you don't have, again, once again, these middlemen that are able to, and, and even in Utah, for example, you know, the real estate lobby was very powerful and they would, they kept, they didn't want, I remember there were a couple of attempts we had, and I think even later to ensure that, because they would list a price, but then you couldn't always see what in Utah, you couldn't see what the actual closing price was. Realtors didn't want you to see that. Right, yeah. that's a piece of information. Well, okay, sure, you listed it for four hundred thousand, but you only got three three fifty for it. So you yeah. know, it's a way actually to cre- generate actually a level of inflation or, or inflate prices mm-hmm. to a certain extent because there's no cost for that, um, where you could actually see what what happened. So I, I don't know if that transparency is now in Utah or not, but at least the last time you know when I was there back in twenty seventeen it still had not mm-hmm. that level of transparency, but with, you know, decentralized technologies and, and a, a published ledger, you know, people could easily see what, what happened there. And, and, and again, you don't have the real estate agent. Yeah. And Utah does have a very inflated real estate market from what I understand. So maybe that yeah. hasn't been changed. It could be one yeah. of the reasons why. Yeah. Um, so you talked about at, at the top of the show, um, the fear that comes with innovation. Yeah. And right now, I mean, I think, there is tremendous fear around artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, some, some of it warranted. I mean, especially when you get into talking about, you know, p- you know legal ramifications and AI, um, you know, bre- breaking copyright uh, laws and, and, and different things like that, um, violating trademarks, et cetera. But, you know, some of it may be unfounded. You know, we are talking about, you know, potentially eliminating the jobs of real estate agents and people who work at banks and, and things like that. Um, but in the past, when there's been these huge techno, techno, technological advancements, it has created you know more opportunities um, um, for people to add value in different ways we can't even imagine. So, should we be fearful, or is this time different? Is uh, is AI the time that people are going to be left with nothing to do, and we're going to need Andrew Yang's universal basic income? Um. Yeah. Well, I think there's going to be a transition period, but you know, I think you're right. Like, it's interesting. Like, if you were just to go in and look at what people were saying about the printing press <laughs> when that technology came out, it's going to ruin the world, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there there is going to be. I, I'm not a fan of the universal basic income. I mm-hmm. I think there there are room in societies for safety nets if well constructed, right? There there are times where displacement comes. Um, and reskilling needs to happen, um, you know, and, and 
I think if we ignore that, then we create um, a, I think we, we create some unnecessary friction, right? Like I think if we can be mindful of the disruption that's being caused. So uh, yeah, I, I think there there's, and this is maybe one of the things where we're trying to play from a policy standpoint is how do we take into consideration from, from the groups that we're working with, some of the privacy issues, some of the deep fake issues. I, I mean, there are some substantive ethical challenges that I think if we just, uh, you know, all, all innovation's good and there's no issue. I, I think if we take that approach, I think that's a really misguided approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there are trade-offs and, and there are downsides. I mean, uh, you know, the internet revolution brought with it tremendous uh, tremendous benefits, but we've also seen some of the costs start to show up, right? Where you've got people like, not people, but countries like Russia that are have become masters in disinformation and their ability to leverage technology to do pretty horrible things. So um, how do we balance that with, you know, so that we get the most benefit and the least amount of loss? Because there will be some loss. I mean, I think to not mm-hmm. say that Jobs are going to be lost that people, you know, certain jobs that people counted on will not be there in 10 to 15 years. That's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, how I think this is where, I guess, from my perspective, where, um, and, and I don't know how we pull this apart, <laughs> but I think the whole university dynamic, um, I think the universe, the whole university structure that we have at, at a certain level needs to be blown up. I agree. Um, if we, if we look at universities today, particularly research universities, the, they're basically really expensive think tanks, right? The professors are paid to research. They're not really paid to teach. Mm. And as a result of that, they, you know, they're, they're researching, you know, really asinine, you know, stuff way off that really doesn't have relevance to what their students are doing. I mean, there's actually an incentive to be more ob- obscure and obtuse in their research than actually researching things that are highly relevant. But um, uh, so I, I think as we look at it, you know, the, the, the university model um, and, and where that needs to go has to change. Um, otherwise, we're going to be left behind. So I think countries and, and places that really, you know, find ways to pivot and institutions. And I think some places are doing this well, but, you know, I do know in Utah now there's a significantly higher amount now of technical colleges, uh, coding boot camp things. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that's the, the liberal education. I think in some ways what may be really valuable over time is that we go back to what universities were more meant for. Uh, which was more of this philosophical, and you need a group of philosophical people in a in any sort of society that are thinking about high level questions. But I don't need everybody to go through that experience. Yeah, um, and we've kind of created this, you know, somehow that when you go through a university degree, that everybody will come out more enlightened. And we know that that's not the case. Clearly, it's universities have become conformity institutions as opposed to. Um, enlighten enlightenment institutions yeah. um so yeah i think as as we look at this as we you know I, I hate to say government as a training solution um but what i think it could be is you know maybe a better way to to do it would be um you know are there are there ways to 
what either incentivize or um, allow companies from a tax policy standpoint to write off more of their investment in their human capital, um, which would change requires change in some accounting things so that companies take on the, the, the financial responsibility of reskilling. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, what ultimately will need to change is how do we train people to engage in the technology? Again, I think there's a mirror mm -hmm. if we look at what's happened in the factory environment, right? So we don't have workers tightening screws, right? Robots are tight, tight, yeah, tightening screws or bolts and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. It's the it's these machines now, and so the blue collar work is actually the work on the machines. And so, what is the work on mm -hmm. the machines that will be that will be the new white collar work? So, for example, with any AI engine, one of the key things is how do you get the data out of it? How do you drive and run the queries that get you the information you need out of the other side? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing mm -hmm. that you know that is uniquely human is the ability to add context. So as we think about white collar work, uh, A, there may be a little bit less white collar work, um, but blue collar work, the way, you know, if we look at it right now, there's there's a massive gap in, in blue collar jo uh, jobs being filled. Um, and we were just talking to a guy, he was repairing our oven the other day, makes 300 grand a year, makes more than yeah. his doctor. Right. But, but doctors are a high skill. So if you think about it, there are really high skilled jobs now that pay very, very well. And we you can't replace <laughs> fixing my oven with an AI engine. You yeah. know? So um, I think there's also that's probably one of the other shifts. So our you know, one of our sons, I don't think he's going to do the four year college. And we've you know, we've kind of made it a family norm that that's, you know, that's okay. You know, th there's value in education, be a lifelong learner. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a university graduate to be a lifelong learner. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think there's a few things for us to kind of evaluate, but at a bar bare minimum, the university yeah. system's broken and is going to get in the way of us being able to adopt more quickly. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of what is pulling the university system along and keeping it on life support is the nostalgia that, you know, I, I went to college. I had a great college experience. Um, I'm, I'm 40 years old now, so it's, uh, it was, it was a long time ago. Um, but you know, I have my wife, my wife and I have an eight year old daughter and, and you kind of think like, Oh, I want her to have that same experience. But at the same time, it's not the same experience and the world is changing. And, yeah. and, and like you said, I mean, I think we're in this transition period where, you know, we need to be open and we and we really need to do what's best for our kids first of all to help them to make the the best decision and yeah i think a lot of the time right at least right now and this might change you know 10 years from now when my daughter goes to college but unless really you're going to go for a a skill a highly technical skill if you're going to be a software engineer or um, an electrical engineer or, or you're going to go on to become a doctor of, of of some sort it really doesn't make sense to pay the insane amount of money um, that colleges are asking for right now. But, but even look at that, like, think about this though. Why does a doctor have to go get a four-year degree before going to medical school? It's a great point. There's no reason. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at, a, at a fifth year, that would be essentially the science classes that they would need to get their pre-med certification at a university and make, call, make 
make uh, you know a medical degree a five year degree. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a, an attorney, yeah. right? Make it a four year mm-hmm. process. You add a year that would cover some of the basic foundational things that they would need. But why does somebody who wants to be an attorney? Why do they need to go to a four year university? to become an attorney. Like we, we've created these systems that say you have to go through this process if you want to be in a, you know, kind of skilled profession. Again, accountants, like even the electrical engineering, do I really need to go through the normal four-year process? Mm-hmm. I, I'm getting some general education. And, you know, again, I, I'm not going to say that that's not good. I think it's not a bad thing for us to be exposed to, you know, a, a wider set of ideas, but clearly that's not happening at the university. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, again, from a computer scientist, from a programmer, why couldn't I go to a two-year program and basically get everything I need to be a highly skilled computer scientist? Did I really need to go take that, you know, English 101 class? Did I really need to go take that humanities class? Again, there's, I'm not, I don't want to diminish those. There's value in the humanities. There's value in yeah. you know, Shakespeare and, and the beauty that the, the aesthetic that that creates and adds to society. But let somebody go get a four-year degree in English and, and let, you know, let's let a segment of the society go and do that. But do I need every student to go through that? You know, so th- th- there's just some ones where I, I just think we've, there's just a real, needs to be a total rethink of, of how we engage in education. Um, yeah. Well, one one more question on this, and then we're getting close to an hour, so yeah. I'll, I'll let you get on your way here. Um, but j- just to just to drill down a, a little bit more on education, and you know, it, it kind of ties in with talking about innovation and what you were talking about earlier with you know companies willing be, being willing to take on risk. And maybe there are companies out there now that are doing this. I'm just not familiar with it, but it's a little surprising that we don't have some of these larger companies really taking on the role of, you know, becoming the, the college. And, you know, rather than asking for that four, four year degree or asking for, you know, a master's degree, it seems like, yeah. you know, more, more and more of these, uh, these companies are asking for not only the four year, but they want the graduate degree as well. Um, but why not attract the talent earlier when you can get them into your company culture, you can, you know, r- really teach them exactly what they need, what they need to do, what they need to, what they need to learn for that first role. And then, you know, from there, if it's, it's another role or, or if they want to move to a different spot in the company, you can, you know, you, you can educate them on uh, electrical, electrical engineering or whatever, put them in an apprenticeship. Um, is that, I mean, is that a path forward? Is that something you see playing out? Yeah, I, I don't know. It'll be, It'll be interesting to see. I think one of the challenges is, um, uh, and this is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. I mean, it, it cuts both ways. And that is we've got a lot more worker mobility than we did back in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. where I think this actually could have worked much better. So it, it's awfully hard for me to make an investment for a year in somebody who's only there six yeah. more months, and then they go on to something else. Um, and so... Um, I think you the, the one place where I have seen people do it um, or, or companies, and this goes back to when I was doing some work for Senator Lee, uh, and we were looking at some higher education reform uh, elements as they were uh, looking to reauthorize the the higher education bill. Um, and and Trump, you know, had his apprentice commission that he was he was working on, and I think had an executive order about that or something at the same time. In the automotive industry, 
there, there is a lot of, they, they were really developing some much more robust apprenticeship programs. And the apprenticeship programs is much more vibrant in Europe. So in the banking industry, you know, auto industry, you name it. Now, again, there's not as much mobility. Like once you're a banker, you're a banker, right? And, and you tend to kind of stay in that track, but also mm-hmm. with the companies longer, there's not as much mobility. Uh, where in the U.S., you know, if you look at my career, right, I started out in public relations and doing investor relations. And then, you know, I switched gears and then I went into HR and then I went in kind of did marketing and operations. And then I went and did consulting. And now I'm at an up, like my career path has been much more, you know, like this. Um, and I'm grateful that I had that flexibility that I wasn't just locked into something that I ended up hating for the rest of my life, but there was really no avenue out of that. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think where, where we may at least want to start is, um, ha- somehow having, univ- you know, and I don't know what, what this looks like, but there has to be, and I think. If you look at, I think, is it Mitch Daniels that's done some more of this with what he's done with Purdue? And then I think Arizona State Universities, um, I think have really, you know, those two presidents have been much more focused on developing corporate relationships and tying how they're developing degreed programs at their university to what the market is saying is needed. So I think it's, you know, from an administration standpoint, and again, some of the professors aren't going to like this. Um, is how do we, you know, there's still probably a place for, you know, the, you know, the Oxford C.S. Lewis Socratic, you know, again, we need that kind of deep thinking. I, I think if we lose that, we'll lose something for society. But I think it's a much smaller subsegment that, you know, need to go through that. The rest of it, you know, it, it, our universities need to be much more agile. Um, and, you know, maybe that's where companies invest, right? They may invest in a university that's providing a pipeline. And then they're maybe a little less worried about the turnover because the university, to a certain extent, has both the tuition and, you know, shares a little bit of that cost. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know that there's an easy answer, but I'm I guess I don't know if I'm skeptical, but I don't know, given the current worker environment and worker mobility, that companies are going to be super excited to try to develop really large scale onboarding training programs only to lose people every you know, 18 months. That's, that's a fair point. Maybe there will be some sort of coalition between companies where they come together to invest, but um, yeah. All right. Well, we are about out of time here. I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to plug everything you're working on Atlas network, anything else, any, any work you have or social media, anything you want to plug? Uh, Yeah. So uh, in terms of social media, um, you know, if you want to, Connect with me at, at Lyle Swim at, on Twitter is best way to get a hold of me. Atlas Network, similar at Atlas Network, um, and then atlasnetwork.org. Um, you know, we we are working in this project on decentralized technologies. Um, a lot of our groups are working in that space. Uh, as a five hundred one c three, if if somebody heard something they like and they want to invest in what we're doing and 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 make a global impact in terms of where the freedom movement is going, would love to have them do that and and be on board and uh, uh, happy to have ongoing conversations. This is an important place where we need to talk. Um, we need to be free to innovate. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Deidre McCloskey is the one that said, you know, we don't live in a, we should stop calling it capitalism and instead call it innovism, 
that, you know, mm. it's really innovation that has driven. And so how do we create a marketplace where innovation can thrive? You know, whether it's decentralized technologies, artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, blockchain, you know, who knows, but what, what this will unlock and the freedom, the future freedoms that this will help secure as we create a, an environment where, where people can be innovative and create value, right? Innovation really at the heart of it is how do we create more value for each other um, right. and for, for a better life. So thanks for having me, John. Awesome. It's been fun. It's a good conversation. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, Lau. Great, great conversation. Enjoyed uh, getting to talk with you. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you. All right. That was a great conversation today with Lyle Swim. Hopefully you all enjoyed that. And if you want more Lions of Liberty, Lions of Liberty, like I said at the top, you can join our pride by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or on locals at lionsofliberty.locals.com. And with that being said, you guys can get on out of here. I'll see y'all next week with another great interview. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.